listening to Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Erica, pick a type of fish. Gefilte fish. Brian, pick a type of course you might take at a community college. Improvisation. Tim, pick a type of underwater battleship which is larger than a, a normal submarine. The Nautilus. <laughs> and that's what this podcast is about. See how I synthesize those by not remembering all three of them at the same time and merely referring to them as a collective? Is it too late for me to change to coping with grief? Yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to do like rug weaving. A gefilte fish coping with grief on the Nautilus. Go. Why am I not outside? Because outside there is only death. But it's my natural habitat. It seems like, why did I choose to come in a ship under the water so close to where I could be happy? Damn it, man, let him out. Can't you see he's dying in here? We can't stop the ship until we sight the gefilte fish. I have to say, after I'm gone, I'm more worried that there's no formalized structure in place to help you mourn me. I feel we could develop such a structure if we work together. But would it be affordable? Nothing in this world is free, my friend. Nothing in this world is free. Now my feelings have sunken lower than this battleship we inhabit. Oh, I'm so bad at this. Can we stop? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> See, that was spontaneous. I didn't use the thing I'd planned. I did not go with the Christopher Guest mode of improvisation. This was a purely organic and thus terrible uh, <laughs> scenario. <laughs> With untrained improvisers. What is this podcast? We're talking about improv comedy, and we have an improv comedy person. Oh, my name is Mark Lintonmeyer. Let's introduce ourselves. My name is Erica Spires. And I'm Brian Hurt. And our guest is... Tim Sniffen. Tim Sniffen, why did I find you? What is it about you that is special that makes you equipped to talk about improvisation with us? I think you found me through Hello from the Magic Tavern, which is largely improvised. And I came to be on that from being around the Chicago improv comedy scene, which just has many different theaters that perform it. And I studied it for some time and have done it here and there. So there are people that are better equipped to talk about it than me, but I am at least partially equipped. And the current thing that you're doing, though, right, is the Improvised Shakespeare Company. Oh, yeah, correct. I also perform with two groups that do long-form improvisation, which tends to be one or very limited suggestions and then a long show based off of that. So the Improvised Shakespeare Company gets a title from the audience and then does a two-act show in the style of William Shakespeare. Another group is Baby Wants Candy that also gets a title from the audience and improvises a full-length musical. Well, Tim, I'll tell you one thing. Mark and I both grew up in the Chicago area and in junior high. I don't know, Mark, if you did this too. We actually went to the second city as like mm -hmm. dumb 12-year-olds. So I, I pretty much know all there is to know about improv having. I mean, I'm sure they hated performing to a bunch of 12-year-olds, but. Every show has its oddities. And I think like anything that makes it different or memorable, people are like, yeah, why not? So I'm sure you were a great crowd. I think the troop knew all they had to do was swear, and that would make us laugh. Like, we were the easiest audience, even though we weren't. We were the only ones not drinking. Yeah, there, I'm not going to get any of the details right. There was a thing about, I think, like, an entire prom maybe went to Second City, and they were like, you can't swear in front of them, and they were such a bad crowd, because they wanted to just have prom. They didn't want to watch a comedy show that one of the performers finally, I forget, just said something horrible and was fired as a result, but he was like, worth it. Instead of a, a band at the dance, they just had an improv troupe performing the whole time? Is that what you're... Yeah, someone thought it would be a great idea to, like, celebrate prom by going to... I know. I mean, hearing it out loud, it, it does not sound like a good idea. It makes sense to me, actually. They did that at my school. We didn't go to an improv show, but we went to this... I'm from the Ozarks. Have you ever heard of the Branson Bell? No. I wish I had. It's a showboat. So we would go on there and you'd watch the show that these guys had and you'd eat the dinner there. And then after they were done, we would have our dance. So it was a little awkward because for like the first half, it was your prom group, which we had a very small school, so it wasn't that huge, which means we also had a lot of like blue hairs on there with us. And then they would all heave and then we would have our dance. Is this Branson, Missouri? That's right. Is it Yakov Smirnov still has like his... It's 
sure is. Like his a whole theater compound. Other Second City groups have gone to this and said it was one of their favorite experiences ever. Oh wow. Yeah, it's in also Branson is a crazy crazy place. Like you've got a lot of people who are super liberal like all the performers pretty much and then you have like super conservative Christian groups who go and watch those shows. So back to keeping it clean, there isn't, we had Yaakov on this show and one of the things he talked about was having to keep things clean and be creative in the way that he approached his comedy. Yeah. And I understand that. Like if all you have is swearing, there are other ways to be entertaining. So I can appreciate that approach. Brian disagrees. Well, it's just a (laughs) PG-13 Las Vegas event Yaakov show in Branson. It was pretty good. I enjoyed it a lot. And Brian, that Second City trip you mentioned, I think that was the first time that I saw a person from TV in real life. It was Danny Breen from Not Necessarily the News. So the veil of glass between me and the world of Hollywood was broken forever. Yeah, there were a couple of famous people ended up being in that troupe. I still have the program somewhere, and he wasn't the only one. I'm already really excited about this podcast because, Tim, you're already proving to be a great guest because I can tell you're like, I watch you and you're like listening and then you respond to it. And then I feel funnier because, and I was reading something about that in an article. It's like, you treat each other with the respect of you have something worth saying. And then I'm going to add to that rather than thinking like, what can I do? That's going to sound smarter or funnier than what you do. Yeah. I like that about improv. It kind of burns away the urge to just be like, I'm going to wait for you to finish talking and then say my hilarious thing that wins you know like it's easier when you're like if all of us have good ideas then like that makes for a better show than someone just trying to take control of all of it yeah 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 here's what i want to talk about oh no i'm so so sorry (laughs) now is that something that you guys try to weed out of people early on when they join a troop or do you find that that still happens or maybe it happens with somebody who used to be really good at it and then they became a star and then they come back to do a show and like they're like okay i'm gonna take control here now it's funny usually people can just jump right in and do a show together and also the thing is with both the baby wants candy and improvised shakespeare company they're taking people that have been doing it for a while so a lot of that is gone. You know, someone that is going to like talk over you, ignore your ideas. No one wants to like be training that. Per- you know, there's many, many levels at theaters to kind of get rid of that. So there's not too much of it now, but oh yeah. Well, here's something. I auditioned for an improv group in San Francisco right after college, had never done it before. And I was not good. And I got into the group, but I ran into someone from my audition later And I was like, hey, I remember you from this thing. And this woman went, yeah, you talked over every single thing that I said in our scene together. Do you remember that? And I didn't. I truly didn't because it was so like out of fear of trying to get in. And it was just trying to be funny, not listening, anything. It was a good lesson for me to have that person go, yeah, that sucked. I didn't get in. I hated that audition, you know, and like she was a little harsh, but also I was deserving of that commentary. And I was like huh, okay, that's not enjoyable for my scene partner. I still remember that moment. I didn't even know until she told me. I was like, we both had a great audition. It's a shame you didn't get in. And that was such a splash of cold water of her being like, yeah, you talked over me, idiot. And so I was like, good to know. So neither of you got in. I got in. Oh, you got in. Which was probably reflects badly on the troupe as well. I mean, it was a very ragtag troupe in a city that didn't have much of an improv scene yet. But I mean, I got some jokes in, so they were like, yeah, we'll take this guy. But that's probably not the best to reward my behavior either. But I got in and she didn't. So she was rightfully annoyed. Tim, do these (laughs) troops typically, is it a democratic process or consensus of who gets in or who doesn't? Or is there some director making these decisions? Or does it vary? I think the best situations have a director because when it is a democratic thing, it just can get messy You know, it's comedy, it's theater, it's very subjective. And when you get 12 people saying like, I don't know, I just felt weird with them. Thank God there's no HR department for improv groups because like it is, it's a lot of that. And Improvised Shakespeare Company and Baby Wants Candy both have like people at the top 
And it's good because, you know, they're very even-handed and fair-minded. So they'll just kind of look at people. And that way, when people are brought on, it's very like, these people are going to be great because I already know they're awesome. But also when there are difficult decisions or even like deciding to take gigs and stuff and where to play, it's nice to have one person so that the 12-person negotiation can happen during the show and not during important decisions. But there are all manners of management of improv groups. I've been in just thrown together teams where it's people trying to decide things. And it's like, don't let actors decide things together. I like that, the 12-person negotiation. I often think of an improv group as like a rock group. But then just consider the potential situation of a rock group forming a hierarchy and branches so that it's not just the Beach Boys, but it's the Beach Boys and their subsidiaries around the country. And to get into any of the Beach Boys lower groups, you have to get Brian Wilson's ultimate approval. And there's a higher, <laughs> the analogy breaks down. But who has time to write songs when that's going on? <laughs> the reason I thought this was a good topic for us on here is, you know, we're always about the audience perspective and how this thing impacts the culture I think improv is very participant-oriented. Does it seem accurate, Tim, that a lot of me, more people are participating in improv in some way, are in improv classes, then actually watch improv on a regular basis? Is that too ungenerous? I don't know. You know, it's funny because in Chicago, it can feel very insular. Everyone is taking classes. And yes, you wonder if more people are taking classes than like actual audience members. But I've been in New York for the last two years and I've been surprised how many full houses there are of people that truly, to be cliche, are muggles, you know, are like, they're just there to see a show. And I'm always like, wait, what's your angle? Like, are you thinking of taking classes or you did a while ago? No. And I think New York is a theater city. So I think you do get more people that are truly just there to watch it. But that is a ratio I wasn't expecting. So I was pleasantly surprised by people that truly are just enjoying it and going away and not thinking about it again. Mark, I feel like the statement you made may have been true maybe before the whose line is it anyway phenomenon. It really went mainstream on television with that TV show, and a lot of people just, I think, got their eyes opened to it. And maybe there was a precursor to that that I'm not aware of, but for me, that was the one, and I just know a lot of fans of that. And it has a lot of viewers, I think. And so people who maybe don't even realize that improv classes are a thing you can take, who aren't part of that world, still know of improv and this idea of throw me a situation or whatever, and then it becomes a thing. And I did a little bit of work on cruise ships, which was a thing that Second City had for a while. I think they don't right now. But I can tell you 100% without fail what people would say after seeing the show was, oh, you're like, whose line is it anyway? And you learn to say, yep, I am, rather than like get into the details of many other things. People know Second City largely, well, I mean, it's its own thing, but also from SNL, like people know that those two things are tied together. The first SNL cast came from Second City, but SNL would be the other one, even though there's very, very little improv on that show. I think Well, you get would... kicked off. Damon Wayans would improv on stage and he got kicked out of the cast. <laughs> Look at that. I was wondering, Mark and Brian, have you guys ever done any improv? Because I can tell you about my improv experience, but I want to know if you guys have some too. I would think that being on a podcast is actually improv, but no, not trying to do a narrative thing, certainly a long form. I think Brian and I both took back in the day a drama class in junior high, right? At least. So they, there were some of those games that looked a little familiar and I witnessed my daughter doing some of those things as well. But I don't know that it's necessarily distinguished from just acting exercises, that these are part of what loosen you up to become a better actor. Was that your experience, Erica? Like that it was just one of the ingredients that led into your acting career? No. <laughs> okay. I was really bad at it. Acting exercises, I never quite loved, but I could do them because there was a specific goal and a thing that, you, you know, you had to get through and it was, you know, maybe 10 minutes long. Improv, on the other hand, I wanted to be really good at. And so when I was in high school, I did speech and debate, thespian groups, right? So like I went to competitions and they would never let me do improv. And my coach said, you're not funny. And I was like, I know, but like there's a formula, right? You talk to us about the formula. I have that. I can do that. And he's like, okay, for this 
I don't need you to do your other events in this particular, because you could only do so many events. He's like, I will let you do improv at this next school. And my friend and I went, two girls. She was pretty funny. We did very well in our other events. We came in last or next to last in every room for improv. And my coach said to me, see, I told you. And I was like, but I did the point. And he's like, yeah, but you're sticking too hard to the formula. You're trying to get to the end of it, but you're not just like allowing things to happen. Anyway, I could never figure it out. And I've been terrified ever since of it. What a bad coach. Did you like this person in other ways? (laughs) Yes, but he wasn't an improviser either. He knew what was good and what wasn't, but he wasn't really helpful in getting me there. No. Did he say, you're not funny and neither is Lily Tomlin or Gilda Radner. I hate women. Growing up in Southern Missouri, most people were pretty polite. He would definitely give me a dose of reality, which part of it was good. But I I think in this format, it's really not helpful, right? Right. To just say, you're bad at it. You did it wrong. There's nothing there to work with. That's just saying, like, stop trying. And I feel like improv is one of the things everyone can do it a little. (laughs) Well, it was fun while it lasted, but it was always difficult for me. And I think part of it was... I was always wondering, and you're making me second guess this now, are there certain personality types that are better at improv than others? Like, what would your Harry Potter house be or your Myers-Briggs personality be? There was one point where I was in a group doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And so the point being, we were all in one house and it was just when the official quiz had come out. Yeah. And what, it was so funny because I think, like many people, we quietly all believed we were Gryffindors. Right. And one by one, we were declared Hufflepuffs. I'm a Hufflepuff too! <laughs> oh, and that's the thing. Like, kind, empathetic, good listener. That often makes for a good improviser. We still have a video. I should try and find it. It's this lovely woman, Erica Elam, finding out. And she wanted more than anyone to be a Gryffindor. She was more invested than any of us. It's just her sitting at the computer going, oh, no. (laughs) And we're all like, what's going on, Erica? She's like, I'm a Hufflepuff. She's nearly in tears. It is hilarious. But we all were. I made fun of her. I was declared a Hufflepuff the next day. And so it was like, well, look at that. I think improvisers are Hufflepuffs that think they're Gryffindors. I wanted to be a Ravenclaw, but got the Hufflepuff. Oh, that's a good one. I took the quiz and I was a squib. For real? <laughs> no. But they had I'm that. sure, of course I'm a Hufflepuff. Come on. You, you've seen like the whole thing of like each house. And if you're in Slytherin, your traits are that you're really ambitious. And if you're Gryffindor, you're really brave. And then the trait for Hufflepuff is potato. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. But, you know, Erica, you get to a question for me about improv, and I think this came up in some of the research we did before this podcast, and that was, is it completely tied to comedy? This idea that improvisation has to be about getting laughs, or can there really be dramatic improvisation or just going for a different kind of emotional response other than some form of humor? And do you think that people who are good at one are inherently good at both forms of improv, whether it's dramatic or comedic? Let's see. To that question first, No, because I think there's also people that just want so badly to do the comedy part of it because that's so classically been tied to it. So I think maybe they'd be good at it, but also like they so have no interest in that. Also, I've seen a handful of trying to think of any examples where it was like we absolutely don't want laughs. I think it's out there, although I mean, and there's a lot of improvised like. Tennessee Williams or David Mamet, I've I've heard in LA. I haven't seen any of those shows. Really? Yeah, they're out there. I had a friend that was like, did it for a while. We had toured with Second City and she was like, eh, it's fun for a while. You know, it kind of stretches a new muscle. I think it's- Improvised Mamet cracks me up. I'm just imagining. Pastiche at that point. Are you really doing drama or are you- No. Doing a bit? And I think they wouldn't even defend it as drama. I think you're doing an extended bit- But if the polish is good enough, it's as enjoyable. One thing, if you're interested in reading, even if you read the first chapter of a book called Something Wonderful Right Away, it talks about the beginnings of Second City. And one of the people that was instrumental in creating it, Paul Wells, I think was his name, he didn't want it to be about comedy. He wanted it to be blue collar theater for everyone. And the thing with improv was you need no formal 
theater training to do it. So he was like, it's crazy. I just read it recently. He wanted to go to like construction sites and do shows like in their cafeteria during their lunch break to be like, everyone deserves theater. It's a mirror for the culture. It enlightens anyone that sees it, but anyone should be allowed to do it. And improv is a way to say, you, come up here on stage right now. We're going to do a scene where you're missing something and I'm your friend that doesn't care and everyone's going to witness it and will be forever changed. I mean, it's crazy. And I think people were like, we're going to get beaten up if we do this. But it started really without any drive towards comedy. And I think over the years, you know, almost just through like attrition, that's become the best use for it that I've seen because it can, it can be quick. It can be super topical. And when it's those things, it can be so enjoyable for an audience because I think they realize, oh, I'm seeing something that truly just happened right now. I'm seeing these people using their minds to make something kind of just for me that couldn't exist on another day. It's a good match with comedy, but in theory, it could be used in other ways. And for a while, Second City was meant to be only that and slowly became comedy based. We're going to stop for a minute for a sponsor break. Erica, will you please do the honors? Hey there, it's Erica here to give a shout out to our sponsor, Mack Weldon, a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. Fellas, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Heck, it's better than what I'm wearing right now, but I'll have to wait for the women's line. Mack Weldon was founded by folks who always questioned how something so essential could be such a pain in the ass to buy. Well, it wasn't easy to convince my husband to online shop for work clothes, But the simplicity of the shopping experience, the sleek web design, and quality of the products at Mack Weldon actually made it appealing. And their sizing guide made it really easy to choose the perfect fit. We received his new clothes in just a couple of days. The radius pant in True Navy feels like sweatpants, but it easily passes for business casual at the office. While the ace sweatpant in charcoal heather is part of his new go-to gym uniform. Being economically statured, he appreciates how the pants don't pull around his ankles. And I'm excited for warm weather to return so I can see him wear the four-way active short in blue night. I gotta say, he looks great. He looks expensive. But the price point is affordable and the product quality is so nice, I'm sure he'll be wearing them for many years to come. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code POP. That's right. Enter promo code POP for 20% off your first order. Thank you, Erica. Let's get back to it. So this is getting at this distinction between doing it for your own personal growth and development, which is what I was implying that I've certainly heard sales pitches that improv will change your life. People come to our improv classes from everything. There are firefighters, there are lawyers. It just, it makes you better in your relationships. You're able to make eye contact with people. It makes you think outside the box. It's great for, you know, so it seems like a self-help sort of skill. That's one way that it's being marketed. And from that perspective, doing drama versus doing comedy would make no difference, right? It's just freeing yourself in order to think and respond authentically to people as opposed to then how it gets packaged, which is, the way that it's actually reached us through films, through the occasional TV show, is through comedy, even more specifically through this gamified, the whose line it is anyway, the most famous thing, which is what I thought improv was, this very specific comedy sports kind of thing, which I actually find much less attractive than the longer form character-driven stuff. What was the question? I, I, <laughs> this is Mark's theme with questions. <laughs> You know, sometimes, Tim, we have to ask him what the question was. I, I love when a guest does. That's great. <laughs> I, yeah, it was very, I was like, you had my attention for all of it. But by the end, I was like, wait, is there information I can add to this? I'm trying to see what you think of that and how these two things relate. The self-help aspect and the entertaining audiences aspect. There is a lot of self-help type stuff out there now. And I think many theaters will message it that way. And I think they even do some division between people that are trying to get on SNL and people that are trying to be better public speakers, be more present in conversations, etc. I see the value in that because I've seen people use it for that reason. Like, I do want to be a better listener. And I mean, I will say it can accomplish that, you know, not with everyone, even if it just teaches you like, you begin to see those people that aren't listening to you, they're just preparing their next answer. 
And if it can take a little of that away from you, yeah, it does probably make you better at your law job or your sales job or whatever. So there is some value. You know, I don't know that it's going to change your life or save your marriage, but like, I think it can be a valuable pursuit. I think like the mass entertainment stuff that we've seen is the most polished, easiest consumed version of it. So, you know, that has its value as well. But yeah, at this point, they feel very different. And I know Second City, I think, added kind of one level of auditions between the classes you can walk in off the street and take and the higher levels of people where they are trying to, you know, they have ambitions for being on main stage or touring or whatever, because too many people were being sent to classes like by their therapist. And you want those people to be able to have, you know, something to go to. But like there was too much of a mix of people that were like hardcore jokesters trying to have SNL worthy scenes and people that were like, I'm trying to be more honest when I talk. Eventually, those two people are at cross purposes. So I think they have an audition level now that's like, you're going for it. You want to perform here and hey, you're doing this to feel more comfortable or for whatever more personal reason. Because those two things in one class starts to feel like two different goals happening. Yeah, I was kind of unaware of that the last time I went to Second City. I can't remember what show we saw. And if I did remember, I wouldn't tell you anyway, because I wouldn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. (laughs) But we had our drinks ready. We were ready for a good time. We'd already had a couple drinks in us. And we just sat there. And man, it was so bad. It was so unfunny. And then somebody, you know, later on told me, they're like, well, yeah, because like, there's a level of like what you're seeing. Some of those people are probably just bringing in their friends and they're doing like their very first show ever, whereas other people do it quite frequently. And you just have to know which one you're going in to see. Is that right? Yes. And a long time ago, it used to be the main stage show and that was it. Then they added ETC, which is another like main stage quality level show. Now there's like 20 shows happening at any given night, some of which are... People just finished their first class, and often a class will include a performance at the end of it to which the public is invited. That might not be the best improv show you ever see, but there's merit in them like getting to do their thing in front of a crowd. You know, it's true. Sometimes they will let people not know what show they're buying a ticket for. Sometimes. At the end of the day, they got to stay open, right? They got to make some money and teach their classes and let people on stage no matter what level they're at. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great they're doing all of that. I'm a big believer in letting like the audience member know what they're about to see, which is also just protection for the cast. Like (laughs) your expectations are like, oh, cool. They're working through stage fright and doing this for me. I'm going to be very forgiving as opposed to I just paid 25 bucks. This better be awesome. Yeah, which I'm totally happy with, too, because like if I'm seeing somebody struggling and like I'm going to root for that person. Absolutely. Right. I thought they wanted you to heckle because it's, you know, audience participation. You suck. I'm being giving by saying you suck. That was because I worked for a while in Amsterdam and a lot of uh, British people would come over because it's cheap to come over there. They were awful. And they've just been brought up that way. They're taught that like comedy is where you scream at them and try to hurt their feelings. And then these same people would come up to us in the bar afterwards and be like, great, wasn't it? Ah, uh, gave you a bit of a razzing, but what a fun night. And you're just like, screw you. Like you were <laughs> screaming over our improv. But that was a cultural thing. We, after a while, like I gave up. I was like, cool, shout. You can shout back at them. Have you done it in Japan? No. Why? What happens? I would just imagine they would be very quiet. And, and <laughs> because like when I did theater in Japan, they did not react. They were very quiet. I've and heard then that. By the, by the end, they loved it. But that was their way of showing respect. Right. Which is weird. When there's no reaction, like, during the show. Are you ready to sit quietly? (laughs) (laughs) Our version of that heckling, apparently, are these internet comments. Because I really was enjoying Hello from the Magic Tavern, and then I looked down at the comments, and it was like... So mean. They're so terrible. And then there was this one commenter named Chester Crummins who says, Let's complain about the free podcast we choose to listen to. Holy shit, guys. Stop complaining and stop being so judgmental towards an improv-based podcast character. Turn it off if you don't like Arnie. Turn it off if you don't like Flower. And I'm like, yeah. And also that goes for anybody listening to this podcast. <laughs> I don't want them to turn it off. I want them to suffer through it like as if they were our, our family members. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about writing that comment for Magic Tavern. And then I'm like, you're Chester Crummins. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish I were. 
That's not a real name. Come on. I know. That sounds like a Dickensian never do well. <laughs> I brought up the comedy sports thing, but just talk about the range of stuff that actually is improv that I just didn't realize this. This is why discovering Hell from the Magic Cavern was kind of revelatory for me. I mean, in the week leading up to this, I watched some Cat and, you know, did some YouTubing around and watched some imp- improvised Shakespeare and other stuff. But I just listened through 200 episodes of Hell <laughs> from the Magic Tavern I'm over so the sorry. several weeks instead of branching out widely because it was a new approach that it's not give us an idea, give us a type of fish and <laughs> And then, you know, we have to do a skit based on that right now. And in fact, the skit is only maybe going to be four seconds long. And then somebody's going to tap you out and come in and stand in the position that you were in and take it a different direction. You know, there's something just very gimmicky so that you could be dazzled by the skill of somebody doing that. But like, that's not something that one would develop an attachment to, I think, and want to listen to a hundred episodes of it. But yet there's these other choices. Say something a little about this long-form character-driven stuff. Well, first I want to say, Mark, I think you might hate improv. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a fair assessment? Someone's standing there like an idiot, and then someone else tags them out, and everyone is very impressed, I suppose. (laughs) if, If anyone has the right to hate improv, it's Erica. Oh. Oh, we all have that right. But Mark, defend yourself. Come on, Mark. Yes, and. Yes, and. <laughs> so I love, like, Christopher Guest movies. Also improvised. I love you're not disagreeing with me. But yet not in the same way. I've only experienced a couple times that comedy sports approach, and that's probably a brand name. I shouldn't even use that. What's the generic for that? No, it is. Comedy sports is a whole franchise. I've never performed there, but, like, they found a way to make money and also kind of codify their rules so that there's like a hundred of them around the country, I think. It's one brand. Competitive improv is what you're talking about. Competitive improv or just very short form, also discovering the improvised musical, like the one that I saw you in, this Mary Poppins one, The Baby Wants Candy stuff. There's also Off Book, the improvised musical podcast. Like I'm super impressed, partially because it combines musical improv, which is its own thing. And I don't know. Is that so? Is that easier? Or I mean, these are different topics, obviously. But is doing something in verse, whether it be improvised Shakespeare or doing it as part of a song, is that a little easier? Because at least you have not as rapid fire. No, I would imagine that'd be far harder. (laughs) Just to come up with a rhyme is is what I'm getting at. I guess then (laughs) we do lots of warm ups before those shows just to get everyone like in a rhyming place, and it gets easier. It throws you at first. I know when I did my first handful of improvised Shakespeare shows. Blaine Swen, who created the group and still runs it, I said, I got to tell you, I don't know that my Shakespeare is is so flawless. And he said, just be a good improviser. Like, just listen and support the story and all of that. Throw in some these and thous and thines, and the language will come to you. And he was right. Like, as you hear, you know, people were at different skill levels, and Blaine got his master's in, I think it's philosophy, specifically through Shakespeare. So his language is just pretty strong. So you just absorb it. It's a little scary at first, but in the end, you realize it's kind of window dressing and it still has to be a good show. You still have to listen to people and support things. And when someone brings up an idea, go with that and don't like overclutter the show. It's all the same stuff. Same with the musical. There's a few differences there. Like you want your songs. We always say you sing when words won't suffice anymore. So it has to have like strong emotion and usually let that drive the songs, maybe one or two jokey songs, but Things like that help with the structure, but there's similar rules governing all of it underneath. Yeah, I love long form because it's less of that immediate low risk or rather quick investment high yield of like, we're taking a suggestion every 30 seconds. Like, so you, the audience can see exactly what we're doing. That has its place. And I've done shows like that. And sometimes you get low attention span crowds that don't want to figure out like, oh, the title was this, but five scenes later, they're doing this. Like, what a cool progression. Some people don't, they just don't want that. But when they do, and I think like the podcast world has been a really nice place for it, it's fun to just have characters and themes, and then you get to see people really like playing through it. And with Magic Tavern, you may have seen like Matt, who plays Usador, he's so passionate. He's so invested in things. Adel loves like, who plays Chunt, loves like ripping things apart, 
finding flaws in logic. Arnie is kind of exactly as he is in the show. But it's those characters. I think that's why the show is still going. It's not any one joke or like, you gave us this suggestion and we turned it into a pun. It's the interplay of characters. You know, it's similar with off book. Like, you sort of invest in Zach and Jessica and you want to see what they're going to do with one title. It becomes more about just following the characters. So I enjoy that kind of improv more these days than like the quick fire comedy sports type stuff. They're both out there and I think they both have audiences. Minus Mark, who hates improv. <laughs> he hates everything. Mark probably hates jazz, too. <laughs> Man, do not go to Chicago, buddy. So I have a similar, actually, attitude, I think, toward both of them, which is if it's really well done, whether jazz, you know, jamming instrumentally or doing improv, then it's just amazing. And it's so hilarious and it's just as good as a scripted show. And it's more authentic than a scripted show. This is why, you know, I feel like when you're just sitting back there at a typewriter, you know, at, at a typewriter, writing dialogue for your characters, as we do <laughs> in, in the, the 1940s. 40s? <laughs> a good writer is obviously going to have a certain imagination, is going to, there are lots of skills that can go into making some dialogue better than others, but you're still one person. And so this is why on TV shows, it's so great when there are, you know, you have a writer's room and somebody can say, yeah, I don't think the female character would actually talk like that. And they will tweak things so that it actually, but if you could just get a bunch of people in a room and get them invested in the situation and the characters, then yeah, it seems like you could have an authentic conversation, an authentic scene. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, is that enough or is what I liked about the Christopher Guest kind of approach or the Curb Your Enthusiasm kind of approach is they still beforehand they know what role the scene plays. It's not like somebody's going to make a choice that's going to fundamentally derail the plot. Like they kind of know what the plot is and the function that this scene is going to play. And so it's just a matter of them living in their characters and honestly expressing themselves. That kind of improv, if done well, I, I love. That's not backpedaling? You really love it? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Spinal tap. <laughs> I think it, it has to, it's kind of hard too because when you're asking certain people – I'm not even improvised, but I'm just saying like when you, you give certain people a script and I've been in rooms where they're working on new scripts and it's, it's a completely scripted thing, right? I don't do like we've discussed, I no longer do improv. When I hear actors say like, oh, I don't feel like my character would say this. Why? What about this instead? Part of me is like, yeah, good for them. They're helping the writer. And the other part of me being the wife of a composer of classical music says, oh, God, they just told the writer what to do, and that's not their job. Like, stay in your lane. But it's a totally different, I, not totally, but it's, it's quite a different thing to do theater in that way, I think, than it is to do an improv show or to do a show that's supposed to employ a lot of improv. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think goals are different. Of using improv in a larger scripted way or structured way or just a complete, like, throw yourself off the cliff improv show? Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's great when improv has a place in scripted or structured things like Christopher Guest, but it's true in the end, you need someone to say like, okay, that's the scene or like, here's the bigger structure for this. Because I think if you were to just let all of that go undecided, it can be great for like a free for all long form improv show. And I think it, even then people develop a sense of like in the improvised Shakespeare show, it will be by scene three or four, you're like, oh, this is a comedy so we're going in that direction and all of the tropes that might apply to something like Midsummer Night's Dream or we're in a tragedy. You know, we're like, this is Hamlet. So even then, there are some rules that quickly everyone agrees on. So it's weird. There is a structure, even though there's no structure for the way the scenes go or any of that. So, you know, there some of it applies. I mean, I just helped with a TV show this summer where what would happen would be exactly the an, an actor might say, you know, this one moment feels wonky. And then the person kind of running all the writers would say, great, give me a page of options for what else they could say. And we would kind of improvise it. And sometimes we would all do it together. And I love that use of improv because then all the rules do go away for a moment. And you know, okay, within this scene, these things are happening. We're not changing any of that. We're not opening up everything for ideation. We're just saying this one thing happened and they're really frustrated. Give me 10 different things they could say. I love that because then the actor can also go like, duck, 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 duck. Yes, that one sounds great. Or do like a reading of a few of them. In that way, I think like improv can be unparalleled because it's different than one person going off with a 1940s typewriter 
and a cigarette and fedora and coming up with lines all by themselves, you could just get more ideas than one person is going to have. You know, there's the occasional auteur out there. Aaron Sorkin surely can go off and write something very interesting all by himself. But I love that thing where many people are offering their ideas and you get something that no one person could have come up with. Well, yeah, for the auteur, you want to hear that voice. You want to hear Woody Allen's or David E. Kelly's or, you know, whoever's voice going through all the characters, even though there's something kind of artificial about that. Right, right. And, you know, yeah, it's true. If you like that voice, then, I mean, you're great. But, yeah, especially for, like, big group moments or figuring out, like, intense emotional moments, improv, I found, has been really handy for even kind of feeling out the rhythm of the scene, you know, like, great, this person's going to make this kind of big blurb of a speech. Then this is person's going to say one stupid thing that will make it a little funny or take the edge off of it. Like, that's something that I think also you develop in improv to start to feel the rhythm of like who goes when that can translate directly into more scripted, structured stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Folks are really aware. Some of the most famous improv, I was also watching some videos of sort of most famous improv moments in movies. And so a lot of it is, oh, Harrison Ford must be a great improviser because he came up with, I know, in Empire Strikes Back. And he also came up with the, I'm just going to shoot the guy instead of sword fighting him in Raiders. So no, <laughs> like that does not mean that there are improv chops there. Obviously there's a continuum of this, that they're, we're also reading about it, the Adam McKay movies, like Anchorman and things where like there is a script, it's over a hundred pages long Let's start by reading that and then just let the actors, you know, get people who are improv trained to then give their variants and see if those are better. However, you were talking about how, the, like, the beginnings of it, right? And it's supposed to be blue collar. It's supposed to be people who are untrained. So, like, there is something beautiful about somebody not necessarily being an improviser and coming up with, here's Johnny. Like, I don't know if uh, <laughs> Jack Nicholson was an improviser, but, like, there were things like that. Humphrey Bogart's Here's Looking at You, Kid was another one that I saw on, that, on those videos, uh, Mark. So I would say I can do that. Like I can feel the character. And when I'm with students, I try to encourage them to fill in the blanks that are not on the page and to do a stream of consciousness idea when they're doing their monologues or their songs. So I suppose that is improv. I think I'm with you, Mark, where I start to think, oh, no, improv is comedy, but it's not. Yeah, I think it's more being so in the moment that you realize like you can create dialogue out of that. And I know Viola Spolin was the person that first created like all these different games and they were meant for children, like theater games. But at some point she said, adults, all this armor goes up at the idea of creating a scene all by yourself and all the dialogue, like none of it is no structure, no script. But often if you give them even the most basic structure of like, you're at the doorway, your wife isn't letting you in the house, but it's cold out. They can do that. Or in those moments, like, you know, Humphrey Bogart in that moment or Harrison Ford. Yeah, they are. They're coming up with like, oh, this is what I might say. I think like that all qualifies. Right. And that, I think, cuts across artistic pursuits in writing classes. So often people who can't just start from nowhere can all do something with a writing prompt, right? And you get that little kernel and it just, you go from having the whole universe to write from to now I have a thing well, I, I can hook onto it, and it gives you somewhere to go, and you, really something can come out of it that you couldn't have done with too much to pick from. This paradox of choice, really writ large in terms of the whole world to write. Just to comment on what you said, Erica, regarding drama, I, I know earlier I mentioned whether improv really was only about comedy. I guess I was thinking about live improv, because I know that Famously, uh, Goodwill Hunting, which won screenplay for best original screenplay, Matt and Ben, am I thinking of the right people? A lot of that was just workshopping dialogue that they recorded, you know, with an audio recorder and then typed out. And of course, it has to go through revisions, whatever, but there's an authenticity to their language that, yeah, you just don't get necessarily as much as you might like Aaron Sorkin. There is a, there is a style to it that defies reality in a way that contrived. It definitely has a form. <laughs> that, They're right? all extremely smart people. Even the people who are not supposed to be smart are extremely it's intelligent. Urbane is what I always think with Sorkin. How urbane. They should have the cigarettes and the, they, they could be like a 50s patter movie, right? Totally. It is fun to watch. Like Alice and Janney and Sorkin dialogue, it feels like a high wire act. 
But yeah, it does feel also a little bit like a talking encyclopedia after a while. <laughs> I'm going to be so embarrassed when we have Aaron Sorkin on and we have to backpedal all this. But <laughs> Just delete this episode. That's right. Oh, Sniffin was drunk. We don't think any of that. He was drunk, violent. We were just agreeing with him to avoid another tantrum. So I had one of my guests for my music podcast who was in Frank Zappa's band, Don Preston. He called composition just slow motion improvisation. Especially if you're not paying attention to the group aspect of things, then it really just does seem, I mean, you got to come up with ideas somehow to put them on the page. You're coming up with them spontaneously. That's kind of the definition of coming up with an idea. Like unless you actually roll dice, you do these weird Brian Eno-esque tricks to make ideas come out of the ether or you, you know, uh, look at the TV guide and pick who's on the cover and let that, that's Tom Petty's inspiration for the jam in me. He just, you use these tricks to externalize. Otherwise, of course you're doing some sort of improv. So what do you think about that whole relationship between, no, it's just, I mean, I noticed Tim, you're also a writer. Like it just doesn't seem maybe that the skills are that different. Yeah, I don't think they are. I mean, writing is nice because I like the balance between the two because improv, it forces you to play well with other people. You can't just go out and ram your own idea into the show. You have to bring some ideas into the show, but then you also have to let go of so many or or they'll change. Writing is nice because it is a time where you can just sit and like hammer through your own idea and try to get it right. So I enjoy both. But I know one nice thing about improv is you try not to get too critical of your own stuff, especially in a show where it's like, okay, you just edited a scene and now you're on stage. You have to do something. Something is better than saying nothing and sinking to your knees and crying. You learn to have a mental place of like, all right, I don't know if I love this idea, but I'm doing something. And similarly for writing, I'll think, just start writing it. Like, don't freak out or get so in your head that you... Talk yourself out of this before you've written any. So I think that approach to me came from improv, which is you'll find out if the idea is viable. You don't need to have this huge board meeting about it in your mind. Just start writing. That's been easier than – I mean I've never been able to like come up with the perfect thing and then just write it down. It's always you start you know, throwing paint on the canvas and seeing if it works. You're inspiring me to get off my ass and stop delaying these ideas that I keep having because I feel like it's not right. It's not, you know, like, and I have that in my head still about like, you don't have a full idea. So how do you know if it's going to go anywhere, if it's going to be worth it? Yeah, that like no idea can pass that series of toll bridges. Like just start writing it. I've started things where I'm like, oh, this isn't that at all. This should be like this. But you never can know that until you you just start. I usually just have a Word document. I have one on my desktop and that I'm working on. And I'm allowed to delete it, but then I have to replace it with a different one. It can't just be all momentum goes away and I'm back to like waiting for genius to strike. It's always like just noodle with something and you can always throw it away, but then you have to start a new one, which is, seems to be a good way of like just keeping the fire going. <laughs> Tim, can you talk a little bit about your work with Life From Here as it pertains to this? This is very exciting to me to see that you're doing Life From Here, which if those of you listening don't know, it was formerly Prairie Home Companion and now Chris Thiele took it over and it's fantastic. I I saw a live show of it last year. It was like the Irish, I, I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was a very Irish show. Yeah. Where was that? At Carnegie Hall. I was there. I didn't have any sketches in the show that night. I was nearby and they were like, yeah, come see it. That's nice. So do you do it for most of his shows or does somebody come up with an idea and give you parameters? How does that work? So this season, they're not doing sketches as much. It's just like they'll have a stand up. They might have like a spoken word thing, but they're still playing around with the format. The last two years were when I was writing sketches for them. I might try and send them some essays to see if they like that, but they're I don't know. They felt like sketches. They wanted to put them aside for a while. But no, it was totally open-ended. They just was, It's public radio, so they don't have like an enormous staff. So you would just submit ideas, and it was very much shooting arrows into the dark. You would just listen to shows and see what got on and be like, okay, so this is what they're going for. But yeah, that was a case of writing for a very specific audience. It can't be too adult. Every now and then I would have something in there and they would be like we can't say that tim (laughs) or even like the concept would be too weird so i i loved the challenge of 
trying to write things that were still funny to me and interesting, but that got on the show. And like incorporating music often did really well because, of course, now like Garrison Keillor was mostly a writer. Chris Thiele's mostly first and foremost a musician, you know, although he's like he's a great host. So you have to like adapt for that. But yeah, I loved it. And there was another person, Greg Hess. He was in that Irish show that you saw. He was part of the cast last year. And he also plays with Improvised Shakespeare. I know him from Chicago and his wife, Holly Laurent. They both were cast on the show, although that's totally scripted. I think they did a show in Chicago where they improvised live, which I think is always a tricky prospect where you're like, okay, we got three minutes and different than other times, this has to go really, really well. You know, it was like a lot of pressure and it was really fun. But most of that is just scripted down to the word because they're also timing, timing things perfectly. They said they would throw things out. If a song went too long or an intro went too long, they would take entire sketches and be like, nope, not this week. So it sounded very high pressure to do the actual show. I was at one point talking to Greg about it, and he was like, the hard part is at any given moment, you could be like, that sketch, do it now. You know, they had a person kind of organizing the whole thing. So you had to be ready to do if they had like six sketches on hold for any given show, you kind of had to be ready to do any of them at any time. (laughs) That is high pressure. I know. And they they made it look easy. I loved writing for them. And when something would get on, because I went to school listening to that and have listened to when it was Prairie Home Companion. So to have sketches on there was just like a delight. Well, thank you so much, Tim. We should wrap up here. We'll keep wrapping a little bit for the supporters. Patreon.com slash pretty much pop. Any last sort of thoughts to wrap this up from anybody? Mark, I want you to give improv a chance. I just want you to go back and find some of it. And Erica, I want you to – here's the scene I'm picturing. (laughs) Your coach is asleep at home. The lights go on. And at the foot of his bed, you do the best improvised scene that he has ever seen. In that moment, tears come to his eyes. He reaches for the trophy he never gave you in improv. (laughs) You take it. You say, thank you. And you just walk out and never look back. That is a beautiful scene. Thank you. (laughs) Brian, are you going to touch our hearts with the last comment? And then his wife says, who was that? (laughs) Zing. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.